It won't be easy, but we can do it. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Stuart Lansley, a visiting fellow in the School of Policy Studies at the University of Bristol, uh, Bristol, a council member of the Progressive Economy Forum, the author of The Rich of the Poorer, How Britain Enriched the Few and Failed the Poor, a 200-year history, which was recently published by Bristol University Press, and the author of a new pamphlet for the Fabian Society, The Equality Question, Why Labour Should Re-Embrace Its Egalitarian Roots. Welcome to the podcast, Stuart. Hi, Will, and thank you for inviting me. It's great to have you on, Stuart. Now, the first question um, that I'd like to ask is, uh, what prompted you to write this pamphlet? Well, I think that the main reason is that um, inequality and the the great divide uh, that's that's happened in Britain and that's opened up uh, more heavily in the last 30 or 40 years is thought to be uh, central to the political agenda. Uh, but the reality is that it's been more or less uh, marginalised. I mean, people, politicians do pay lip service to the need to do something about the gaping divide between the top and the bottom. But uh, the truth is that it's been pretty well politically marginalised. And I really wanted to make the case uh, that it should be brought back to the centre stage of, of British politics. Um, and so what I've tried to do is, is make the case for that, uh, in part by setting out the consequences of this great surge in, in inequality and poverty over the last uh, three or four decades, uh, but also to kind of set out a programme about how we might put it back uh, on the political agenda and the kind of strategies and policies that would be needed to close some of the, uh, the, some of the most serious gaps. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. And, and 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 the gaps that um as you address in, in, in the first chapter uh of the pamphlet are ones that have been occurring and, and, and reoccurring in um British politics and, and, and in the economy for, for quite a while. In in the first chapter, um you argue that there have been two fundamentally negative waves of inequality in the past two hundred years. The the first lasting until um uh, the, the Second World War, 1939, and the second beginning after the end of the uh, of the Attlee government with the, the, the period during the, the wartime coalition and, and then um, the Attlee administration being a golden period uh, in between, which was responsible for reducing inequality quite uh, significantly. Why do you think that um, subsequent governments have not seen the pattern that you've described in the pamphlet and better followed the example of the Attlee government? Well, I mean, as you say, um, my, my basic sort of thesis is that if we take the period of the last 200 years, essentially industrial capitalism, uh, Britain has been at the top end of uh, the in international inequality and poverty league table for about 80% of this 200-year period. It was only uh, during the post-1904 era when, you know, which was kind of the high point of egalitarianism, uh, that the gap um, fell. And indeed, the 1970s were a period of peak, peak equality and a low point for poverty. We've never really done better 
uh, than in the 1970s. I think what happened is that the egalitarians essentially lost the argument. They lost the battle of ideas. And during the crisis of the 1970s, a sort of group uh, that uh, up to that point had been fairly marginalized, but a group of thinkers on the new right um, had started to, had been arguing that egalitarianism had gone too far and that what Britain needed was a very stiff dose of uh, inequality. Uh, one of those making that case was uh, Sir Keith Joseph, who was a leading conservative mm -hmm. politician and, and very close to Mrs. Thatcher. Uh, and he, I think, you know, and others persuaded Mrs. Thatcher that, 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 that what Britain needed was a stiff dose of inequality to get the economy going, um, and that actually it would um, it would increase the size of the cake to such an extent that everybody, uh, even if their divisions were greater, would be better off. So it was a kind of doctrinal uh, transformation. It was a sort of counter-revolution against the ideas of equality that had, that had embraced, that had been at the heart of um, the post-war social democratic experiment. Uh, and so what we've effectively had is... Um, four decades of an inequality experiment, um, the, running the economy at very high levels of inequality, higher levels of poverty, uh, with the aim that this would boost economic enterprise and make everybody better off faster. And of course, now we have the evidence of that experiment. Um, the evidence is very, very clear. It has been a complete failure. None of the theories behind it have proved to be the case. And we've simply had a fair, you know, rolling problems uh, fallout from these much higher levels of division, both sort of bad economics and bad social consequences. Uh, so that's, you know, it, it really is time, I think, that um, we really had another look at this whole question of equality and inequality and came up with a strategy for taking us back to the egalitarian era. The, the second question um, is related to um, a quote um, from, again, from the first chapter, in which you argue that levels of inequality and poverty are ultimately the product of the political and economic power games that play out between big business, state and society. To what extent do you think that the scale of economic change in Britain that is needed to reduce inequality means that big business becomes more influenced by the state? Uh, and how do you think that that argument would be made to potentially sceptical voters, those who might think that the state should not interfere or um, control big business uh, to any great extent? Well, I, I think what's happened is that um, uh, ultimately um, the social strength and economic strength of society depends upon achieving a balance between those three big players. That's a sort of big business, the state and, and wider society. And wider society includes, of course, um, the workforce. Uh, and what happened in, in the post-war era is that balance uh, created um, a sort of steady equilibrium. Uh, what, what happened in the early eight, the, the counter-revolution of the early 1980s is that balance of power was shifted uh, away from society in favour of big business. Um, the state uh, executed this shift uh, because they thought that by empowering business leaders and weakening state regulation, this would increase the strength of the economy. 
And what happened was that business leaders took um, advantage of this uh, new pro-rich, pro-inequality climate, mm. not to not to build bigger, long and and, and stronger companies in, and, and building resilience. What they essentially did is they used this opportunity uh, to grab a larger share of the cake. Uh, they uh, devised a number of uh, business methods which were essentially aimed uh, less about less less to do with creating new wealth by building the productive strength of the economy, but by, you know, kind of appropriating or extracting uh, the existing wealth of companies. And so what you actually had was a kind of upward shift in uh, in the extent to which the rewards from business activity went towards at the top, uh, rather than towards uh, wider society. So we mm. had this sort of uh, th- this development of these pro-inequality forces, partly uh, because of the way the state weakened the system of social protection, but also because uh, business leaders um, grabbed the license to get rich, which essentially had been awarded to them in the 1980s, in order to... Uh, you know, exercise a whole series of personal policies of personal enrichment uh, and business self-interest that simultaneously weakened uh, the strength of the economy. So, if we actually compare the egalitarian period and the and the post nineteen eighty inegalitarian period, on almost every count of economic performance, it was the first period. We did much better. We had higher growth rates. We had, had higher productivity rates. Mm. Uh, we had uh, faster rates of social progress. It, it, in the latter period, um, we've essentially created a society which is low wage, low productivity, low growth. Mm. And a lot of that is attributable uh, to the uh, change in political economy and the shift in power uh, that has created a much more unbalanced society and unbalanced economy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think that the the way that you describe um, that that lack of balance is is incredibly important, particularly when we're we're thinking about um, how inequality is not something that is is, is merely a um, statistic on on a spreadsheet. It is very much um, a part of uh, people's everyday lives. And in in the fourth chapter, um, you highlight. That inequality not only impacts, as, as I just said, the economic factors in, a, in, a, in an individual's life, but it's also created a growing trail of social distress. Do you think that the issue of inequality is too often thought of as a purely economic matter and separate from social concerns? And that as such, it means that it hasn't been central to policy arguments in a way that it should be? Yes, I, I, I think that... Um... What's happened over the last sort of 30, 40 years um, is that the rise in inequality has been bad for the economy, but it's also, uh, as you know, you quoted me, you know, it's left this trail of human cost. Um, but uh, so, so it's not just a matter of higher rates of poverty that, you know, are, are the product essentially of the way in which um, uh, the, you know, the income and wealth have become increasingly concentrated at the top, at the expense of the share 
uh, going to the bottom. Poverty is directly related to that. It's, it's not just a matter of increases in poverty and an increases in uh, you know, absolute deprivation. Mm. You know, we, we, we've seen, uh, you know, we've been going backwards in terms of um, the living standards at the bottom. People, you know, significant minority of the population are poorer than their parents' generation and the mm. generation before. But it's had impacted in other ways. It's impacted in terms of um, politics. So we know that, uh, so in the mid-1980s, for example, the uh, the turnout in general elections between uh, the ri richest groups and poorest groups w w was about even. There wasn't mm. really a gap. Today we have something a 22% gap. So essentially, uh, we've been disenfranchising um, a section of the population who've effectively given up on their hope that politicians would actually look after their interests. Mm. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's also been driving, this great surge in inequality is also a key factor in driving uh, climate change mm. uh, because the, the rich are the, the biggest uh, promoters of, of um, the, the, the climate crisis um, mm. and, and, uh, and, and pollution. And that's what happens when you get economies that are distorted towards the top. What you get is a form of luxury capitalism in which uh, resources are essentially transferred from meeting basic needs to meeting these sort of high levels of, of um, high levels of, you know, you know, excess and, and luxurious spending. So, mm. And we know that, you know, the private yacht, the private jet, um, for example, are among the biggest sources of of um, of global pollution. Um, so, I think we've lost sight of this. I think you know that politicians have kind of ignored these links. This link between uh, the concentration of wealth and the wider consequences, um, which have weakened. Uh, economic performance, but also had these significant social consequences. And unless we really start tackling this problem, uh, these issues are going to intensify and get worse over the next uh, couple of decades. So I think we are at a tipping point now that um, I think, the, you know, present levels of inequality are almost certainly unsustainable. Um, and therefore, I think it, it, it's gradually going to force its way back onto the political agenda. Mm -hmm. And and do you think? I mean, you you mentioned um, the 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 lack of in engagement there for those who are obviously at, 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 towards the, the the bottom end of the um, economic spectrum, those who have um, suffered the most from the the inequality gap. Do, do do you think that that really can be seen as one of the driving forces behind um, populist movements that we've seen both in in the UK and the US, and that really by tackling inequality and reducing inequality you also at the same time stop those uh populist often very far right movements from gaining ground well i i mean i think that um that, that, that we we've had different sorts of social movements mm -hmm. um uh we've had progressive social movements over the last a few decades, the women's movement, the anti-racist movement, uh, the environmental movement, um, uh, that, that have 
uh, uh, you know tempted to build the case for a more progressive society but i think mm. the but there's but, but we've also seen over the last you know decade or a little bit longer uh, the negative kind of movements that have, have been moving up and i think unless we tackle uh, the, this level of uh, injustice and so on then large groups of of the of the world's population are going to turn to more extreme politics uh, because they will begin to feel that you know lib, you know sort of liberal democracies have kind of failed them they failed mm. to to look after their interests so uh, and i i think we can see you know what you know the sort of move towards uh, right, right wing, right wing, the rise of right wing parties, um, and, and uh, in 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 certain Western countries, including the United States and so on, uh, can be not totally attributed uh, to the failure of the of the mainstream political classes to uh, tackle this this question of distribution to make sure that the proceeds of economic activity are, are more equally and fairly shared. Mm-hmm. And in in regards to um, the the political establishment, in Chapter 6, you make the argument that New Labour made steps, positive steps, towards reducing inequality, in particular inequality in real terms and childhood um, inequality, but it fell short of its own aims for reduction of, of, of inequality. How far do you think that the reduction of inequality as a name fell victim to the need to present the Labour Party under Tony Blair, New Labour, as being as much a party for the well-off as it was for those in need of help? Well, I think New Labour bought in uh, to the argument that um, uh, the the, the pro-market uh, argument, and 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 they basically thought uh, that the role of they essentially uh, abandoned Labour's um, commitment to egalitarianism. Uh, they felt it was possible to tackle poverty without worrying about what was happening at the top of the distribution. Mm. Uh, they, they effectively abandoned the pro-equality goal of Labour. Uh, but they did set very significant targets to try and reduce poverty. Uh, and they, to some extent, they succeeded. Uh, but the strategy was never sustainable. Um, as long as the level of poverty is, is ultimately the product of how the cake is shared, and if you allow the cake to go on being, um, you know, d- d- colonised, the, you know, games making activity colonised by the top, then you're always going to have downward pressure on wages, incomes and living standards at the bottom. And so I think Labour was, you know, trying to fight poverty with one hand behind its back. And we now know that um, uh, inequality rose under new Labour while poverty fell a little bit. But that proved unsustainable. You know, with, with, you know the, the last 15 years have, have reversed uh the 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 gains that were made Mm. under labor in large part because um of their failure to tackle inequality and make inequality uh, a key part of of their economic and social goals Mm -hmm. um we've discussed the 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 labor party and new labor in um 
in, in that section with regard to that question. But I'd like to now turn to the Conservative Party. Um, to what extent do you think that the aims of so-called competitive Conservatives can be seen in some way as a, as a smokescreen? that the advocacy for reducing inequality is used as a tool to ensure continued support of the party uh, from those who, those British people who are less well off? I, I, I think, well, I mean, what we know is that um, uh, during the uh, 1990s and, and during the sort of long period of uh, new Labour dominance, the Conservatives did try to reinvent themselves. Mm. Um, and so you had um, compassionate conservatism and, and leading conservatives saying, you know, they wanted to tackle poverty and inequality. And I think there's no doubt that um, part of that was to try and change their appeal, to try and mm. appeal to a wider section of the electorate, be, uh, because they, you know, they, you know, they'd had... Uh, a long period in the in the wilderness, and, the, and they wanted to get back in power. And what happened, and you know, from two thousand and ten onwards, that a lot of these promises essentially evaporated. I mean, mm. again, they 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 kind of played lip service. Uh, I mean, both, both um, David Cameron and, and Theresa May uh, talked about social injustice and and. Um, May you know in big policy statements, but they effectively this was kind of double speak. I mean, they were effectively mm. carrying out strategies of austerity, cutting benefit levels, um, demonising uh, those claimants, imposing you know sanctions on 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 claimants, and so on. Um, uh, that 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 um, while allowing the rich to get richer. So. I think that, that 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 what we've had is this 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 sort of politics of division, uh, you know, kind of hidden, but uh, by kind of language, softer mm. language, um, that 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 gives the pretense. And I think, you know, we've had the leveling up agenda in the last, you know, that Boris Johnson's leveling up agenda, which to some extent was a recognition. Uh, that um, Britain had allowed divisions to get too too deep seated, uh, but we know that this again was pretty token. Uh, you, know, you know, there was very little, very few resources were devoted to it. It was probably wasn't going to make uh, very much different, and now uh, it's effectively being abandoned. The um, uh, finally the current as of as of the time uh, of recording. Prime Minister has made much of an argument that something has to be done to achieve growth in the economy, that, as she argued, uh, by cutting taxes for the wealthiest, they will invest more in Britain and that money will eventually trickle down to those less well off. Uh, that to use her phrase or, or a version of her phrase, the pie will, will grow bigger. Um, what are your thoughts on the motivation behind the Prime Minister's economic policy? And why it has so utterly failed? Well, I mean, what, what, what's happened over the last, you know, four or five weeks essentially um, is a restatement of uh, the doctrines of the new right of the uh, 1970s um, uh, that high levels of inequality 
are the way to promote growth and high levels of productivity. Uh, when we, we've had 40 years of an attempt to apply that doctrine, and we know that it is largely failed, it's a completely false doctrine. Uh, increasing levels of inequality does not lead uh, to stronger and more resilient economies and faster rates of growth. Indeed, uh, they've created the opposite. So it is a completely false doctrine. Um, and uh, the interesting thing is, I think that what's happened is that this sort of attempt to try and uh, return to that pro-inequality philosophy as a political, as a, as a way of running society, uh, has clearly reached its limit. Mm. Because what ha what's happened is that you've had a rebellion by large sections of the Conservative Party who basically say you can't, you know, have a political philosophy that in, in a in a period of, of deep crisis when you've had stagnant wages and falling living standards and rising levels of homelessness, you simply cannot, you can't abandon the groups who are uh, suffering the consequences of past policies and simultaneously allow uh, the rich to get to get richer. So her, her whole philosophy uh, has been shown to be uh, unsustainable and untenable. Um, and now, of course, um, uh, the Conservative Party are kind of rowing back, but they're rowing back in a way uh, that um, is still going to leave giant gaps. When, mm. you know, the, the, what we now know is that the, you know, the, the collapse of the economic problems of the last, you know, uh, decade um, are, you know, driven in large part by uh, the austerity economics of uh, post-2010 mm. are about to be replayed. You know, it, it yeah. now looks as though that they've restored some of the tax cuts, but in, but 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 left a a sizable hole in the deficit, which is going to be filled by another round of austerity, uh, which which is the opposite of what you need if you're going to create growth. If you're going to create growth, the last thing you should be doing is cutting levels of public investment and cutting you know cutting you know, cutting wages, public sector wages. Um, uh, which is just going to intensify uh, the recession that was coming in any case. So I think, you know, what we've got at the moment is a sort of package of um, policies and philosophy uh, that is going to uh, intensify the economic and social problems uh, that have arisen over the last two decades. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, thank you very much for um, your time. Uh, Stuart and uh, your contribution to the podcast. I would highly recommend that anybody who hasn't got uh, themselves a copy of the equality uh, question, make sure that they do. It's a, a fascinating dissection of some of the uh, mistakes that we have made in, in policy relating to inequality and and, and offers a, uh, examples of how we can um, fix those problems. If people um, want to find out more about your work and, and more about um, the, the things uh, that you were doing, um, where should they go uh, online to find out more about uh, your work and more about you? Well, I, well, I do have a, a website, um, uh, which is www.stuartlansley.com. Uh, uh, 
www.officeofthegods.co.uk. So it should be it should be <laughs> fairly easy to find. And then, you know, I haven't really kept it up to, very up to date, but uh, quite a lot of my recent work is is is, is there. Um, if anybody's interested in following up, excellent. Well, I'm sure that there will be. And thank you once again uh, for taking part in the podcast. Well, th- thanks, Will. That was very interesting. Thanks, thanks for inviting me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam, and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast, or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.